Before we start today's show, I want to invite you to join my community of SaaS founders, agency owners, and others who are sharing tips, tricks, strategies, and tactics for creating successful cold outreach campaigns. It's a free group on Facebook called Cold Outreach Mastery, and you can get there by heading over to morgandwilliams.com slash community. And if Facebook isn't your thing, but you still want valuable cold outreach advice, head on over to morgandwilliams.com slash newsletter and put in your best email to get first in line for valuable resources that I share on how you can fill your calendar with sales meetings and your pipeline with opportunities. Now, let's start today's show. One of the biggest factors of success in your cold outreach campaigns has nothing to do with what you write in your emails. It doesn't even involve who's on your prospect list. You see, when you send someone a cold email, there are steps that the recipient goes through before they respond to you. These things can involve visiting your website, your LinkedIn, or even Googling your name or your company. Now, when someone checks you out, you want to make sure that they're compelled to respond to you. You want the thought in their head to be, this is exactly who or what I'm looking for. How do you set yourself up for success in the best possible way? My guest in this episode is going to tell us how to do just that. By the end of this episode, you'll discover how to create email campaigns that generate six to seven meetings a week. I'll see you on the other side. What if you knew exactly how to use cold email, LinkedIn, the phone, and other sales channels to get new meetings and customers for your B2B product or service? Morgan Williams is an enterprise sales rep that's obsessed with cold outreach. If you're sick and tired of fluff, theory, and general advice on how to sell to cold prospects from people who haven't sold anything in the past 20 years and instead want detailed, tactical, step-by-step instruction, this is the podcast for you. Each week, he'll interview salespeople, consultants, and entrepreneurs about actual outbound sales campaigns they've run with real numbers and results. Each conversation will be a deep dive into deconstructing a specific campaign's results, as well as the strategy behind it. You'll get the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see what's actually working now in cold outreach. Welcome Welcome to to Outbound Outbound Metrics. Liam Redmond is the founder of Optimize Outbound, a self-professed group of geeks who are obsessive over optimizing outbound sales processes with data-driven decision-making. He's also the growth manager at ClearBank, the largest e-commerce investor in the world. Liam, are you ready to dive in? I'm ready to dive in, Martin. All right. How does your agency get results? We find companies that solve specific problems for specific people better than anyone else. Awesome. Love that answer. And what would you say makes you different? What I would say makes us different is that we go for extremely personalized one-to-one emails and copywriting approaches that make sense for the problem that the agency or product is actually solving for. Gotcha. And is your pricing productized or custom? It's custom. Gotcha. And who would you say is your ideal customer? I would say we provide the most value to anyone from like five to 20 employees that has like a decent customer base that they're actually providing like a good product, some sort of differentiator, strong social proof. Um, Usually it's like one or two salespeople that they want to spend all time that they have in the day closing and not doing all the outbound themselves. Pretty, pretty typical. Gotcha. Absolutely. Very specific. I love it. So for today, the playbooks you brought, the client we're talking about, what industry is this client in? 
So this one specific client that I think would be the best to talk about for this purpose sure. of the conversation, he does paid search and social on Facebook, Amazon, Google, some Pinterest, all the typical paid search and social channels is probably the best for, I would say, mid-sized e-commerce companies looking to scale their ad spend. Gotcha. So he comes into companies who are already spending on paid channels and like, hey, I can optimize and yeah, even yeah. further. So anyone who's probably spending anywhere from like 10K and taking up to about 100K spend per month. Gotcha. Okay. And is there anything additional or specific unique to it or that's like the main value prop? That's like the main value prop and why this main campaign performed so well is that he served and had social proof that was very specific to a specific niche or demographic of like D2C products. Um, and I think that's probably like the best way for anyone else out there who's like running their own paid search and social agency if you want to differentiate to just have some sort of really strong social proof in a specific niche or demographic. Gotcha. So did this social proof this come in the form of case studies, testimonials, video testimonials? What did that look like? Yeah, so this guy had a really great portfolio of social proof at a previous company that he worked at. And then like classic kind of agency founder, left a really like well-known agency, started his own thing, brought a couple of the brands that he was working with with him, had a bunch of like really rich case studies with very like tangible business metric outcomes. One of the metric points was like improved a company's monthly revenue by 600% in three months of working with them. He scaled another company's paid search and social and set up their Amazon store, opening up a whole new revenue stream when they were traditionally a retail only operation. So he had a number of like very tangible services and with like good social proof of doing it for brands that he had worked with before. Awesome. Specific offer with specific results. Yeah. You mentioned about his customers, D2C brands. Can you expand on kind of who he brings the most value to and kind of what laid the groundwork for your prospecting? Yeah, totally. So this one specific example, he had the most like social proof with kind of, I'd say like health, low carb, that kind of like niche. And as everyone knows, there's probably like a lot of factors why a campaign like that would perform extremely well right now. Uh, it's an extremely fast growing space in the mm -hmm. e-commerce industry. A lot of people are getting into the paleo, keto, low carb lifestyle. Um, even though it's been kind of big on the scene with the popularization of like CrossFit and things like that a number of years ago. But if you look at like search trend volume, it's still up and up and up year over year. So that's like the main thing. He targets these in health, but low carb, like you mentioned, low carb, keto, those types of companies. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Ultra specific. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. I feel like the internet has gone from cars.com and these big, like huge verticals. Those are already spoken for, right? Everything's yeah. moving more towards long tail, more specific, more unique, solving specific problems. So it's really nice to see this. So let's talk about building this campaign for him. Like at a high level, what did the big building blocks of the campaign look like? Yeah, so at a high level, typically we kind of take a pretty similar approach and very process-based approach to any campaign we're writing. Me and the other guys on the team will sit down, look at all of the existing clients that a company has, kind of like peel back the layers and really try to like identify what are the commonalities, what are the trends, where do they have the most social proof 
and where do they have the most tangible business outcome metrics. I know I keep repeating that same thing, but have just seen it time and time again for outbound. Unless you're really able to communicate how you're saving someone time, increasing their revenue, decreasing their costs, unless there's really like what's in it for me, if there's no tangible ROI, we really just avoid working with people. So yeah, we'll kind of like do that, really look at all their clients, see where they have best track record and kind of build our campaigns in there. Awesome. So once you have that information, what happens next? Once you kind of figure out this is kind of who we want to look at, people want to find. Yeah, totally. So I guess there's probably two things. There's copywriting element of things, and then there's actually like getting the list of companies. So the copywriting perspective, we will kind of do a number of things where we'll start looking for, okay, what is the specific language that these founders of these companies really care about? Or do we have like the industry specific lingo talking about low carb, paleo, keto throughout like the entire campaign and not just an email one so that we're able to take a very segmented approach without doing much manual personalization after an initial email and kind of bringing up things like industry reports that are very specific to their vertical. Again, adding these small things that are in an automated touch later on in the campaign can make it appear as though it's a highly personalized one-to-one campaign throughout the entire email sequence. So that's one of the things we do. Beyond that, we go and see like, okay, what are the real, I guess, specific pieces of information related to this exact segment that is super important. So for a lot of these types of companies, they're very mission driven. They usually have a pretty unique founding story. Maybe they have a very specific set of press coverage from like Inc, Forbes, Fast Company, things like that. So we'll really look at, okay, what are all these different pieces of data or data variables that we can go out and collect in like on mass or at scale and piece them into an outbound email campaign so that it's coming across as highly, highly personalized throughout the whole six email sequence or whatever it may be. So that's kind of one side of things. And then actually just like building the target list of companies. We'll use a number of things where we'll scrape online directories, find like lists of relevant companies, or we'll just look at things like search key trends, search volume for specific verticals, things like that. Or just even look on social media, like what brands are people talking about in the space, using things to generate lookalike lists like Alexa, things like that. There's a number of different things we'll do to get a subset of brands that are very similar to where this specific client has seen success before. Gotcha. So you're really keeping your ear to the street, trying to get a real sense of the industry and who the players are so that you can really key into trying to get their attention without Yeah. A couple of questions on that. How do you stay organized and do research without going insane? How do I do research without going insane yeah. in this kind of fashion? I mean, it can be a little bit crazy at times. Like I said, there's a bunch of us working on the team. So sure. you know, it can always help to delegate the things that you can't do yourself. Working pretty long hours most of the time is definitely a part of it that's like not the sexy part, but that's the part that people don't talk about too much. Pretty standard stuff, like really using a project management tool, having like very organized sets of Google Sheets, making sure that we're all communicating across the team very regularly so everyone knows what's expected of each other. And we have, I'm going to say a decently kind of oiled machine right now that I think every business has a lot of room to improve, but we're still a relatively young agency and company, but I think we're doing okay. Awesome. You spend time on 
researching the industry and you spend time researching the company. Do you spend any time researching the individual or those two are kind of like the catch, catch most of what you're looking to do? Yeah, so we're definitely doing some research on the individual where relevant. It kind of really depends on, I would say, the actual industry that we're reaching out to. Some verticals we've seen a lot more success referencing specific previous job titles on LinkedIn, really kind of saying things like, oh, based on your experience at company X and Y, it's super impressive what you're doing here, things like that. That's been like a pretty successful strategy for us, but it's not something we'll do across the board. It's kind of just where relevant and where we see it's going to add value or add like a layer of specificity to the campaign. Okay. And for writing copy, do you have like a framework you use? Like do you use ADA? Like how do you kind of go through when you're writing copy for these campaigns? And <sighs> Yeah, I would say that it's kind of a big combination of a lot of the, I think like LinkedIn, like sales outbound, like gurus, guys, whatever you want to call them. A lot of them are just like repackaging classical frameworks like ADA and sure. putting some spin on it. Um, so I think everything kind of does come back to that core, say something that's very personalized and not scalable in the first kind of body of text, the first sentence or two to grab someone's attention. Then I'll usually have like, I guess, why me, why now type thing where it's like, I'm the founder of X company, we solve Y for B. And then a really compelling social proof offering or kind of, we solved this problem for this company and increased their revenue by 392%. Make it like ultra specific, ultra clear, very, very concise as well. And then in terms of like CTA, we've seen the most success just kind of falling back to I'm sure you've seen like all the data released by Gong, where it's the earlier you are in the sales cycle, just ask for interest. And the further you get down in the sales cycle, be like more specific. Like, are you free at time one or time two on day one or day two? So really asking for just interest. Are they interested in learning more? Not like, can you jump on a call right now type right. thing at the start. And then as soon as we have that level of interest, jumping in with like, okay, trying to be as specific as possible and reducing any sort of cognitive fatigue that might go into a prospect's mind when it comes to like, oh, am I free at Friday? Let me go check my calendar. Just trying to take out any friction for the prospect. And then outside of that, really just taking advantage of a lot of like biases from like, thinking fast and slow type things, recency bias, anchoring bias, things like that. Influence the psychology of persuasion, like the Cialdini book, kind of going back to a lot of classic advertising texts as well, like Ogilvy, people like that. But yeah, I think like to come back to what you kind of asked the question to start, I think a lot of it is just a classic ADA framework, repackaged, trendy new things. But I think that's the core of most of like how we approach copywriting. Absolutely. You dropped a lot of really good resources in there. And just for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with what Liam's mentioning, basically to get good at copywriting, you got to study psychology, copywriting fundamentals, and persuasion, as well as just doing things like understanding your market, the lingo, right? That all goes into it. I mean, you obviously do a lot of reading in this space. And I can tell you have a lot of interest in what makes people tick which is what you need to be good at outreach. So yeah, absolutely. 100%. So we got a really good idea of kind of how we're building the list, how we're writing copy, how many touch points are in this campaign and what do they kind of look like at a high level? Yeah, so this specific sequence that I'm referring to was six emails. That's pretty 
standard for the email part of our sequence. Usually we would do like a touch point or two on LinkedIn. In this one example, this guy was not very active on LinkedIn and was reluctant to giving away his credentials. He was like, oh, I just don't want to use LinkedIn. So that was kind of his preference. Typically I'd have like a connection request and like one or two follow-ups there. But for the email portion, which is the vast majority of where we're seeing most of our success, it was like six email sequence with like a new thread, reply, reply, new thread, reply, reply, spaced out over around 25 or 26 days. What did those emails kind of look those structure, those emails kind of look like? Yeah. So typically when we're approaching writing a campaign, we will have like the first part of the sequence will have something like I was mentioning earlier, the email one, very like classic personalized first sentence. Second sentence is like very much why me, why now? Third sentence is like a very tailored specific social proof. Then a call to action. An email two is kind of how we approach just asking for like, hey, what were your thoughts on my previous email? Trying to drive more traffic back to this really well personalized email one. And we'll usually add an additional metric that didn't appear in the first case study. So for example, maybe if we're saying, hey, we can increase your revenue by X percent in email one, maybe email two saying, hey, we can reduce your CPA by X percent in email two. So now we've hit like the two different things of going for how much you can gain versus how much you can save. Another thing we'll do is alternating the disposition of the CTA. So going from something like, would you be interested in learning more about X? And then in an email to changing it to something like, do you have anything against learning more in something like that? So just changing the disposition. Um, then in email three, usually we'll have a more detailed explanation of really the product or service in a lot of campaigns. I'd say everyone who's doing outreach on some sort of decent scale, you start to see the same sort of replies all of the time, yep. where it's like, tell me about your pricing. Tell me a little bit more about how the process works. Tell me a little bit more about this, about that, whatever it may be. So the way that we're starting to write a lot of the later part of our sequences, we're trying to kind of bait out those subtle or silent objections before somebody even gets to say them. So if we see okay. after a couple of weeks of running a campaign that one of the most common responses is tell me more about your process. Then we're like, okay, we need to write a more process oriented email. Still trying to be very brief and concise because I just really err on the side of sending shorter emails is better all of the time. You can always have a back and forth with more detail, but you only have a prospect's attention for so long. So yeah, an email three is really for that person who's looking for a little bit more detail about how the process works. Then in the second half of a sequence, I mentioned email four is typically our second new thread. It's usually about two weeks into the sequence. At this point, we're starting to ask for more information that might help us sell somebody else in the org. So maybe, for example, if we're reaching out to a founder, we might say, hey, are you the right person to be managing this or things like that? Are you already working with somebody? Because then as soon as we start having the objections, we've honestly seen like we're able to turn a lot of those around to get them to a meeting. So if somebody's already working with an agency, they're already working with another provider, five times out of 10 with some good objection handling, I feel like you can get those to a meeting at some point. On email five, you usually will try and have some sort of tailored case study or tailored testimonial. Really, we're kind of like trying to pull at the heartstrings here where it's like, hey, here's the testimonial from a founder that's very similar to yourself. And here's what they experienced by working with this product or this company. 
And then in email six, we really try to go with this. I know Morgan J. Ingram is like a big believer in this kind of frictionless breakup email mm-hmm. where it's like less aggressive, less like, oh, this classic cookie cutter, one, two, three, you're interested, but you're busy, yeah. you're not interested, this sort of stuff. I honestly ran that playbook for like a year or so and it worked really well. And then it just stopped working out of nowhere. So mm-hmm. now we try and take like, hey, it seems like really this isn't the right time. Here's a bunch of value added resources that might help you between now and when is a good time for us to stay top of mind. So a lot of the companies that we'll work with will have, say, like an ebook that's a free value add, frictionless, feel good kind of CTA, like, oh, let's keep in touch. Maybe it will be the right time. And we've seen that to actually be like pretty successful. Damn. Yeah, pretty in the weeds there. <laughs> I need a cigarette after that one. That was great. I love that. You went through each email and really dug into not just what you're sending, but why you're sending it and how you're kind of trying to persuade the person to respond, to take action. So I love that. What tools do you use using any automated sending tools at manual? Yeah, we've used a number of tools. It kind of depends on what the company is already using themselves. Oftentimes, if they're not using anything existing, we'll usually use outreach. That's where we've run like the most of our campaigns. Some clients, say for example, are already using something like the HubSpot or they're already using Mixmax or SalesLoft or something in-house. Really, we'll try and avoid from like ripping something out or making the process any more difficult for them. I feel like if you have the same core functionality, honestly, it doesn't make a big difference. I really like Mixmax. I really like Outreach. Just a preference thing, but I think they're all great tools. Awesome. Let's talk about the results from the campaign. Definitely want to hear about this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I actually have them written down on this notepad here beside me. So for this one specific campaign, this is kind of like data that has normalized and matured because we stopped running it a while ago. I was 85% open rate and 27% reply rate, about 20% of that being positive. Gotcha. What was that reply rate again? 27%. 27%. And 20%. 20 being positive. Yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. What types of things did you have to optimize during this campaign? And how long did it run for? So this campaign was running for the best part of about a month from like mid-June to about mid to the end of July. And things that we had to optimize for, as we were going through this campaign while it was live, there was actually an enormous boycott of Facebook ads, like just in the middle of the campaign. So that was a pretty big talking point. So as I was mentioning, we will typically try and change the second half of the sequence to be more kind of information gathering so that if we're ever resequencing someone again, we have some additional context. So like mid-sequence, a big change that was made to this was talking about the boycott of Facebook ads, talking about some specific data related to how that had reduced the CPAs for brands across all e-commerce categories and asking the prospects how they were taking advantage of this. And a lot of people responded saying, oh, I didn't know that. Can you share this data? Or, oh, I didn't know that. What are you seeing with your clients? And it really got a pretty high response rate versus any other kind of fourth email out of a six email sequence that I've typically seen before. I attribute that to, like you were kind of saying, keeping your ear to the ground, I guess, at the start of the podcast, being very in line with like what's happening in the world. I think it's so easy to get like, here's the exact playbook. Here's what works. I've seen it work before, so I'm not going to change anything. 
But in this specific campaign or this specific target audience, it would just seem like remiss to not mention a massive event like that happening. Absolutely. That's a good opportunity. How many prospects total were in the campaign? I think if I can remember off the top of my head, there was somewhere around 400 in the space of a month. Gotcha. Okay. And yeah, you mentioned like people responding, asking questions. You start to see a lot of the same questions after a while. Do you have a process for keeping track of those people, following up with them after they've engaged you? Are you inside of a CRM, one of the CRMs you mentioned, like following up those people? And when do you kind of like hand that off to your client? Yeah, totally. So typically how we're managing it with most of our clients is we're taking everything up to a booked meeting. With some of our clients, we're just taking it up to the point where we're getting a response. Some of them were kind of augmenting their internal sales team. So they just kind of opt to prefer that their salespeople handle it, which is honestly, it's a dream for me because then they're doing more of the work. And then some people we are doing it more like we're getting it to a booked meeting directly in their calendar and anything beyond that, we're keeping track in a CRM. And a lot of it's usually some pretty like lightweight kind of hacky stuff, like putting together a collaborative Monday board with the client or a collaborative Notion board or Asana board, things like that. Like I said, a lot of the people that we're delivering the most value for are companies between like five and 20 employees. So anything beyond that, I just feel like it's kind of Mm over-engineered. And honestly, a simple solution, like there's there's honestly like nothing wrong with the spreadsheet. But yeah, I think a lot of these like cheap, lightweight project management tools are a great solution for this. Awesome. How much do you follow up with people if they've kind of responded once, but may have gone cold on you? Is that in the playbook too? Yeah. So typically like when we get a response, we're always like kind of judging by sentiment. So if somebody's saying they're not interested, typically how I approach that is I have one response that's like, oh, no problem. If they give a little bit more detail or context in the reply, I'll usually like say something about that. But if it's just like a flat, not interested, it's kind of like really like a flow chart where we'll say have a very open-ended, not interested see if they respond to that and give you a little bit more to buy it on. If they don't have a very close-ended, not interested, maybe like, oh, it seems like you haven't responded yet, probably busy, blah, 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 blah. Here's like typically the most common three reasons that someone that we talk to might not be interested. And usually you're kind of like teeing these people up with like three things that you have a good objection handling response for. That works pretty well. Beyond that, if somebody's not replying after those two things, it kind of comes down to expected values then at that point. Like if they seem like a really amazing company for that specific industry or that specific client, we'll go and do some additional digging. Like I've gone as far to like listen to specific podcasts that they've been on as a guest. That's a great piece to put in any like outbound playbook, listening to podcasts and kind of taking out specific things. Like I found a founder of one specific apparel company in a different campaign where he was openly talking about his difficulties with Pinterest. So Mm. I found this one specific snippet, followed up, and I was like, hey, I know you said you weren't interested because X, Y, and Z. On this podcast, I heard that you said that you were struggling with Pinterest. That's actually a service that we offer. But again, like this is something we don't do for every single prospect because it's just not very scalable. It's pretty time intensive. But in this one specific scenario, it was like an extremely high expected value prospect for this company where the expected payoff made sense. 
Another great thing that we'll have in the playbook is like personalized Loom videos. These are like a really easy thing that you can do in like a minute or two. We'll even ask like clients that we're working with if they want to go the extra mile for certain prospects and do things like that. It's up to them. It will increase the chances of responding, but it's not a necessity. And oftentimes new position like that, a lot of them are more than happy to spend 10, 20 minutes a week knocking out five Loom videos with like some real target key accounts. And I've seen those be extremely successful as well. Obviously, I think if somebody's giving you a lot of detail in a response, really like acknowledge what they're saying so that they feel like they're being heard and handle that objection accordingly. Beyond that, you should have a process where it's very standard, not interested, open-ended, not interested, close-ended, follow up with a little bit more like extra detail if the expected value of that prospect makes sense. Gotcha. I love it. Very formulaic. Do you know the meeting book rate of this campaign or like how many meetings your client actually ended up taking? I could go back and like calculate it for you, but just anecdotally, I think he was getting about six, seven meetings or so a week. This was like an agency with seven employees. And like, ironically, after I think three weeks of sending, he said, can we pause the campaign? This is working too well. Great problem. Which is uh, pretty funny to have, but yeah, it's a great problem. If you're great for those case studies and great for those testimonials. So yeah, I'd say the meeting book rate based on that math was probably at least the 20% of positive replies eventually. And I think a lot of those meetings actually went to like proposals and like even a couple of closed deals, which is obviously the most important metric. Gotcha. I was going to ask you that if he shared that with you, the revenue he generated from it. Yeah. So from that one specific campaign, there was a closed deal. There was like three proposals that went out. There's two proposals that are still out that were like bigger deals. So hopefully he can get one or two of those would be nice. But yeah, there was one closed deal from that specific campaign and some DQs from the client's point of view as well. A couple of these deals got to like advanced proposal stages where it started to seem less worth it for the client. And he was like, this campaign is obviously working, but this client seems like they might be less ideal to work with in the long term. But like I'm turning down this deal. So I think there was potential for more closed deals. But one thing that we've definitely noticed with a lot of our our clients is it's oftentimes about closing the right deal. And the contract value is obviously important, but like there's other things, other factors. Awesome. Do you know how much revenue was generated from that closed deal? This one closed deal, I believe there was about 14,000 based on an initial contract value. Awesome. Love it. Liam, this was incredible. I really love the amount of detail you gave, the very like scientific approach you take to cold outreach. And you also respect the art of it too when it comes to psychology and understanding marketing and copywriting. Where can people go if they're interested in working with you or want to learn more? I would say you should probably reach out to me on LinkedIn is where I'm most responsive. Beyond that, like there is contact form on optimizeoutbound.com, but I don't even know what page it's on, to be honest with you. It's more of a landing page, but yeah, LinkedIn is pretty good or my email is liam at optimizeoutbound.com. I'm pretty responsive. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us, Liam. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure, man. No problem. It's great being here. Bye-bye. Bye.